And so it begins. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. You make me want to be a better man. Hello everyone and welcome to Watching the Right Movies of the Murkowski Brothers. I'm Ben and this is my brother Nick. Hey everybody. Alright Nick, now as most people like to do, they like to compare what we have now to things in the past. And particularly people like to compare current you know, Hollywood stars to old stars of the past. The most, yeah. the easiest of course being that George Clooney is literally a clone of Cary Grant. I don't know about... Cl- I don't know about clone, but he's very similar to Cary Grant in a lot of ways. Well, he's the. I never heard that. I never thought about that. Are you kidding? I would have. That's not who I would have compared him with. When we're watching Notorious, I'm like, "Yep, that could be George Clooney." Well, yeah, they wear a lot of tuxes and they look good in tuxes, and they kind of have that sort of detached half smile thing going on. And they are, but here's the difference: Cary Grant was sort of hired on for his comic ability, whereas I feel like. They tried to, uh, and then only later in Notorious did he kind of be known for, he was playing against type in Notorious and then went on to have a career of playing straight men uh, or dramatic roles where it's sort of reversed with Clooney who was trying to be force-fed into either romantic leads or action um, parts and he kind of realized his strengths lie more in sort of light comic uh, or, you know, dashing sort of, half sarcastic leading man although he also does some a lot of dramatic stuff then too well, and he did start in roseanne <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you're talking i you're right but i mean that's the tv that's a whole different thing yeah all right so then so then here you give me your our current actor closest to humphrey bogart i can't i knew you were going that with that yeah. for and even if you've had this much time, you can't think of someone. Well, the thing, well, I'm, and I'm right, and I also want to reject the premise. I knew, I knew you'd like. Who I knew you'd like, say that. <laughs> who would be your your uh, Jimmy Stewart of the Tom day? Hanks? Like a Tom Hanks, yeah. easy. Okay, well, we were both there on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Humphrey Bogart. So you're looking for a tough guy. I. This is going to, this will end, if I say this and mean it, and I'm doing this with my tongue in my cheek just a little bit, it will end the today versus yesterday argument for all time. What are you? Maybe, uh, maybe Vin Diesel? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Do you have somebody in mind? I don't, I don't really think of it. So I thought of this last night. I thought for a long time. Yeah, it's tough. my... My answer I came up with, I liked, except he's kind of old now, so even he is not really current. Uh, I was going Harrison Ford. You know, as soon as you said that, Harrison Ford's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, because the, the anti-hero, Harry, you know, the the rogue yeah. with the heart of gold. I mean, that's that's right. That's I mean, he's essentially in Han Solo is essentially Rick. Right. Uh, that's a good point. Okay, yeah, I, I can buy with that. Right. But the, go ahead. I was to say the key, right, is he's you know he's a movie star, so he's handsome, but no guys are you know. Because I, I was thinking maybe it's Brad Pitt. He's not Pitt. a pretty boy. Especially, not if you, a pretty if, boy. especially if you throw Brad Pitt with Angelina Jolie in with like Bogart and Bacall in. But he again, he's too much of a pretty boy to be Bogart. Yeah. And to even Harrison Ford is three or four times more attractive than <laughs> That's uh, true. than than Humphrey Bogart, who I mean, who but you know then who was short and wore a toupee yeah. and it had a whole bunch of different. 
Uh, you know, he's got an interesting yeah. face, and that's why you become a star. Yeah. But you're right. Unlike a Tom Cruise or a, uh, even a George Clooney, there's no... He looks like he's been in a couple fights, been in some yeah. scrapes. You, some you believe him that's that he could... makes him sort could, of a tough guy. That he could beat someone up. <laughs> that was... Somebody said that Humphrey Bogart is the only person who can be tough without a gun. Uh, and I think it was Raymond Chandler who said that, who, of course, will come up later in this discussion. But the, uh, that, you know, the interesting thing, and it's not, it, you call it nostalgia or sentimentality, being like the stars were better back in my day or whatever it is. The system was different back in their day. Yeah. And you can't really have, I mean, stars were the point, were the whole right. reason behind it. We're finding out more and more, <clears throat> Taylor Kitsch, that it doesn't matter who's in, if you can open your <laughs> open a movie or not, the movie is what sells the movie, not who's in it necessarily. Yeah. And the way that the system has changed fundamentally, and has really since the seventies, you know, it's the problem with today's stars is that they are fighting for a spot that is already occupied. You know, there will never. It's not so yeah. much that Catherine Hepburn was so great that there will never be another Hepburn. It's that she has that spot. It's like Elvis. Elvis will yeah. always be the king because he was there first. Yeah. And those guys uh, in the 40s, 50s, and well, 40s and 50s really took the the land. The landscape had been uh, had been level, or the landscape had been prepared by the stars of the 20s and 30s. And now, mature uh, people who were brought up with the movies already were starring in movies, and they were taking uh, occupying the spaces uh, that they do now. It's the reason why Humphrey Bogart is probably you know the 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 only actor of the ones that we're talking about who's going to be remembered uh, definitively a hundred years from now. That's a pretty bold statement. Well, I I'll check check back with me in twenty one fourteen, Benny. All right. Uh, it's easy for me to say he's definitely going to be remembered in the in the end of the uh, fourth millennia. Uh, I can make that claim without ever having to be called out about it. <laughs> but if we do kind of forget, I mean, because movie history is so short relatively, you remember all these little movies, you know, there's as many plays or books that come out and have come out for the thousands of years that plays and books have been written and, and recorded. You only remember the biggies, you know what I mean? Yeah. As the history gets longer and longer, it's easy in 115 years of movies to say, here are the... 30 best movies of 1899. Uh, but at a certain point, there's just going to be too much information that we're going to have to drop that down to zero, to one or two or zero. You know what I mean? And that goes with secondary stars of the 40s and 50s. Uh, and pretty soon you're going to be left with Bogart. John Wayne and, and Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> All right. So, what movie are we talking about that may or may we, not star Humphrey Bogart? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if we were like, and now a discussion of the women. Uh, George Sukor's wonderful 1940. Okay. Uh, the movie is The Big Sleep, 1946, directed by Howard Hawks, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart and his wife, Lauren Bacall, who I can't remember if they were married at the time of this production or not. But well, right they were. Around I, the time I looked it up. They were. They were. So they had just gotten married. Uh, they had started together two years prior in To Have and Have Not, another Howard Hawks vehicle, was Bacall's first movie, uh, and had fallen in love there, which was a messy type of deal since uh, Bacall, uh, since Bogart was not only 24 years older, but was already married, and um, he, he uh, dumped the old bag and married uh, Lauren Bacall, as, as it so often happens. 
and they were screen darlings for the public, and they couldn't get enough of them, and this was at really at the, uh, I wouldn't say the height as much as it really cemented the two of them as a screen pair. They went on to make two other movies together, but uh, the reason I'm bringing so much about this is that this, more than being a Howard Hawks movie, more than being a Raymond Chandler movie, which is based off of his novel, more than any of the screenwriters, which we'll talk about, uh, this is a Bogey and Bacall picture. Yeah, which is pretty obvious when watching it. <laughs> right. Uh, they reshot two, in my opinion, perhaps the movie's detriment. I've read a couple different uh, reports on this, but the, the secondary woman, Carmen, the nymphomaniac sister, yeah. who's very good in this, yeah. her part was shrunk to make room for more Bacall action. And I've read reports that say it's because Bacall vainly said, I need to be in this more and she's too good. She's overshadowing me. Uh, and other things that just said for other, that the, the studio was basically saying the same thing. I don't want to, you know, throw Bacall under the bus, but I have, you know, it was something made her part shrink and their, and uh, Bacall's part grow. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. I know that it works the way that it does. Uh, there's an extra scene that has nothing to do with the plot, and of course, I think we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about the plot. Um, but of the two of them in of Bogey and Bacall in a bar where they talk about horse racing, which is one of the great uh, production talk, code censorship. They um, talk about horse racing. Wink, 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 wink. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he says, "Looks like you could go all night." And she says, depends on who's the saddle. Who's in the saddle? Who's in the saddle? Which is a, gr- which is a great line, uh, which has absolutely nothing to do about equine sports. Um, but it's a, it's a good 1940. That's a nice, I mean, a lot of people who love this era love those sort of sneaky, yeah. the, the way screenwriters were able to be actually a little more ribald, a little more sexual than showing, than, uh, than, uh, how you can be now because of the double entendres and the under the surface stuff that they had to change to get away with it. You know, there's a reason why uh, we still talk about, why don't you come up and see me sometime uh, as a line and the line like this, uh, it depends on who's in the saddle. Uh, a lot of those lines come from this era and they're just the filthiest uh lines but they were the only things they could get past the censors and they still stay today because they're such they're so good whereas a whereas a you know the reverse if it was made today it'd be like well it depends on who's making love to me and we just wouldn't <laughs> you know we wouldn't that would die away um uh well, that kind of thing. yeah i i felt the it dep- or it's like i want to find out if you are you a front runner or do you come from behind that to yeah. me was the <laughs> <laughs> the most extreme of the entire horse racing discussion. Sure. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, so it's based on Raymond Chandler's novel, The Big Sleep, starring his famous detective, Philip Marlowe, right. who's played by Humphrey Bogart, meaning that Humphrey Bogart played both Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. Sam Spade. Yeah. The other, I mean, th- that's like playing Batman and Superman. That's what it is. It, that like, is what it is. Like, it's and that's literally equivalent. I mean, you know, Sam Spade was Dashiell Hammett's star detective in his novel i mean these were those were as huge as batman and superman if not bigger than they are now. i mean that and hubbard bogart played both of them you say hammett and chandler are the the dc and marvel of the literary 
yeah, uh, detective. I mean, you could make, if that's yeah, if we're making that uh, analogy, sure. <laughs> well, he never played Hercule Poirot. <laughs> well, he didn't get the triple crown to bring to bring up horse racing once again. Hercule Poirot. Uh, I would have loved to American. see him with a French he was Belgian. That's right. That's right. I would love to see him in like a, a Flemish accent. I <laughs> uh, would have been horrible. Okay, but you're right. So he, Sam Spade, who she had played in the Maltese Falcon, which was really one of his first starring roles, because he was a tough guy. He was he was a he played like the heavy. He was yep. the guy that the other guy sent out to to kill people. And uh, in the Maltese Falcon, that all changed. He became a leading man. That was solidified with Casablanca and then continued through the 50s as he got progressively worse looking. But, um, you know, again, <laughs> it's, just, it's just an unfair world out there for actresses. But, uh, you know, he remained a box office. <laughs> that, that's a fact. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, a box office staple for 20 years. And he was already, I mean, when the 40s started, he was in his 40s. Uh, you know, so he most of his film life was not starring roles. Yeah, so he he makes a good hard boiled detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, now and I you have said, read you've read the book, and I've read other places that the, he's acting more like Sam Spade than than Marlowe here. That Marlowe is a little more in the books, a little more laconic, a little more reserved, and not as hard boiled. And that the screen I've read this, and you you having read both the book and seen the movie, uh, the screenwriters wanted to cash in on the Sam Spade-Humphrey Bogart connection. Can you speak to that at all? Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that is somewhat also we see, like, uh, I mean, that yeah, he had, that all the witty, you know, repertoire, not just between mm-hmm. him and Bacall, but him and, you know, other people. Uh, oh, yeah. All that, some great it, one-liners here. Yeah, it's a little bit more like Sam Spade than Philip Marlowe. Although I read Big Sleep a while ago, uh, but I've also read uh, Maltese, Maltese Falcon, Falcon, and I haven't seen the the movie. Malt- Actually, no, I, I have seen. Really? It. No, I, okay. I have. Yeah. Although I just saw Casablanca like two months ago for the first time. You'd never seen Casablanca? I know. <laughs> well, I thought I, mean, I remember watching it with mom. Well, you guys must have done it without me. <laughs> you weren't there. Okay. Yeah. It's a anyway, movie. G- good movie that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right, but you said we're going to talk about the plot, and I suggest yeah. that we don't because it makes no sense. <laughs> the plot makes no sense. There, that, that was, I'm not, it's not that we're going to talk yeah. about the plot. It's that we're going to talk about the fact that the plot makes absolutely no sense. That here we are, two intelligent people yeah. who have how many college degrees between us? I'm, I'm bringing my one to the table. <laughs> how many do you got? I, I got three. <laughs> okay, all right. So four, but averaging two per. That's yeah. how I'm going to say that. <laughs> So, uh, and we've now seen the movie, and you've read the book, and I've seen the movie two or three times. I do not know what this movie's about. There's a, uh, there's a, there's, there's a captain, <laughs> there's blackmail, there's murder, there's several murders, many of which we're st- supposed to kind of believe are more important than others, but we yeah. don't know who perpetrates them, per se. Um, there there's might be a, a missing man. What's that? There might be a suicide. There might be a suicide. And what you're talking about is the chauffeur? Yeah. Okay, so the famous, the most famous antidote of this whole movie, uh, during that scene where they they pull the uh, the car out of the ocean, out of the you know uh, that has the chauffeur yeah. in it, Bacar, or Bogart asks Howard Hawks, the director, who killed the chauffeur, and the and Hawks had to admit that he didn't know, and he 
they wrote to William Faulkner, who's one of the screenwriters, and said, who killed the chauffeur? And he didn't know. And they cabled Raymond Chandler in London and said, who killed the chauffeur? And he did not know. Yeah, so he said, I don't know. I, <laughs> yeah. So the, the, I, the point, it's funny. If you've never seen this movie and you're listening to us and you're saying, why is this one of the right movies when it has a nonsensical plot that has a ton of holes? That does, well, I don't know if it has holes. How should I know if it has holes? I don't even know what the, what the non-hole parts yeah. are. Uh, the movie is so secondary to the plot. This is a style and this is a, this is a vehicle for two leading actors and actresses. Uh, and... You know the style yeah. of it and the feeling of it, not the details of it, come across. I know it's not yeah. so much. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a movie I enjoyed a lot from a couple years ago. Right, and my it was hard to follow, <laughs> impossible to follow. But you, in terms of the minutia of it, and my wife, who's read the book, has seen the six-part Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy British miniseries, which I've also seen. And the movie, I mean, she's done the triple, the, the, the trifecta. And we both talk about how little we know. I mean, after having seen six hours of it on BBC, I don't know what's happening in it. But it doesn't, it, that doesn't keep it from being satisfying uh, because there's an emotional story that's going on, which is basically the love between, or the romantic relationship between Bogart and Bacall that we are able to follow step by step. The, the murder plot and the blackmail plot and the nymphet sister and the crotchety <laughs> alcoholic old man, all those things are additional flourishes uh, that have nothing to do with what we're really after. You know, if you said in 1946 a movie that made no sense would come out, you wouldn't think it would be a, a big hit. It wouldn't be a big hit in 2014, you wouldn't think. This is a big hit, and I think the yeah. reason it's enduring uh, is despite the fact that the plot makes no sense, um, is impossible to follow, can be frustrating if that's what you're trying to do the whole time, uh, is because of all the other elements that we're talking about. What does uh, those elements that do make it a great movie? Yeah, I will say, watching it, I actually, I was very upset because I, I couldn't piece it together. I was like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and, and all the other, all the other guys look the same except Bogart. So I was like, wait, who's right. that? Is that Brody? That is tough. Who's who is Mars versus? Yeah, Mars. Versus, and they, they all have staccato type names. Yeah, who's uh, Mars versus? Like, is that the inspector? You know, mm -hmm. have have we met? You know, Brody. Like, I'm like, who? Right. I, I yeah. But what actually tomorrow today when I woke up, it's not that I understood. Like, it's not that it all came together, but it came enough that I became at peace with the plot, the basic plot. Uh, to me, the ba yeah. to me the base the basic facts are. Carmen was crazy. She loved. See now I can't even remember the names, but she loved wanted. Uh, Eddie remember? Mars, right? No, she wanted. Oh, Sean. Sean, Sean Regan. So she killed so Sean Regan. Mars, your love. Mars covered it up. Yeah, well, she's crazy. Mars kind of covered it up. It uses blackmail. Uh, Laura McCall. Vivian, the sister, tried was trying to cover this up too, uh, but uh, in the end, we see you know Mars is supposedly the big bad guy. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's really the sister, and he nobly, not really nobly, but I mean, it should be the sister who's the the who's really the bad. Uh, because in the, the book, it's the sister completely. Right. There's no standoff in the book. That so to me, like like some people complain, oh, you change it from the book. Uh, 
uh, it gets the feeling of the book completely right, if you ask me. Uh, and the fact that, like, in the book, you have more of... He doesn't kill the sister in a showdown, but he kind of... He has a kind of... The ending is kind of him st- facing off against the sister and revealing that she is... Right. And then he they send her to a psychiatric hospital, because that's what they did in the 40s. Which is... Right, because she's hysterical. That's what they do here, well, too. They do here, but, but that's kind the, of the afterthought. <laughs> but I like the device of how he gets rid of Mars. Oh, yeah. Has which him, is, his own men kill him. Has his own men kill him. Uh, which, is a, which is a good device. Martha Vickers, by the way, plays Carmen, and she is really electric. Uh, oh, yeah. And seems very modern. Except yes. for some of the times when she's acting "quote unquote" high, but uh, that first introductory scene is very sultry. Very, it, it seems completely out of place in 1946. That's what Too I much thought. in your face, uh, but works really well, and it makes way for one of the great lines in the whole movie, which is "She tried to sit on my lap while uh, I was standing, standing up." up yeah. which, is no. a, which is a very good line. No, I really, I fe- well, I, I, mean, I thought a lot of the scenes, I mean. It's almost like a male fantasy. You know, Bogart gets to okay. He meets this young nymphomaniac. Mm-hmm. He, he meets his other wild sister. He right. gets. He meets this uptight librarian. Mm-hmm. He seduces the another chauffeur. uptight li- librarian. You, there, I think there is something subtly there that he is always being, which is again bizarre because of, right. He, he, he has the taxi driver. The taxi who's, driver who's also is extremely attractive. Like all these girls are very good looking. And they're all throwing themselves, in a certain sense, at him. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of what's, what works here as sort of, because each one represents their own sort of danger uh, element, yeah. too. Um, and so he's often avoiding, you know, because they're either working for the bad guy or are the bad person themselves, or you don't yeah. know if you can trust them or not. And so there's, they're all representing this sort of temptation. And it really works for me. But it reminded me uh, of the scene in one of your favorite movies that completely takes me out of it, which I think is a <laughs> terrible scene, in Die Hard on the plane at the very beginning. What do you mean? Rolls his Because I think Die... Well, not when he rolls his feet, but when he leaves the plane and the, the, the stewardess, the flight oh, attendant, yes. gives him the, the you know... <laughs> Uh, I makes make loves to him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and speaking now that we're talking about it, I think Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis is a pretty good. Uh, Bog- uh, that, Bogart, oh, modern day Bogart. That's actually a bunch. Of, you're right. I I would give you that. Because he's you know balding and ne- not really attractive, like and yeah. not not traditionally attractive. Uh, but I just don't see that stewardess giving him the 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 once over. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I'm like, yeah, all right. Well, However, and, that, it, and that's the only part but, of the movie where that happens, right? It's the only time right. that anyone thinks that John McClane is really attractive. And by the movie, I mean these series of movies. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. It's like they started uh, out and think maybe we're making a sex symbol, and they're like, no, let's just let them let's have just, one-liners right. and blow stuff up. Uh-huh. Right. So uh, I, that's a, I don't think there's been ever been a comparative study between The Big Sleep and Die Hard, but there, there should it is, be. There, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, but Die Hard is a flawlessly constructed plot. Yeah, that's... Uh, in which every beat you can follow. That's just a really good movie, too. But uh, this is a wildly different, um, but still uh, very, very good movie. And uh, yes, you're right. There are four or five women, all of which are extremely attractive, all of which are forward in their aggression towards him. And he is, which is in a certain sense unbelievable. 
yeah. but you never but it it doesn't it doesn't play erotically it plays um uh oh, suspenseful cuz you don't you're with him along with him on the on the mystery uh and they all represent different threats and different um uh, I don't know the one li- the li- the one librarian that just goes across the street with that. You're pretty there's pretty much no suspense there. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, all right, but certainly but that the was assistant... but that was a good scene. I mean, the yeah. the dialogue is great pretty much throughout. <laughs> oh, the dialogue is very very good, and uh, Hawks would often say, who made a lot of Raymond Chandler uh, movies, that the, the, Raymond Chandler is the greatest screenwriter. You know, for in terms of just taking the dialogue line for line. Now, a lot of that didn't happen. I mean, they have to change this and that. And like you yeah. said, now, uh, let me ask you this. Is the book any easier to follow? Uh, no. <laughs> right, right. So uh, the book the only, is also... My only, my only real hang-up with the movie is that you don't come back, you don't see the sister after, like, the first half of the movie, even though she is the cause of the whole... Pro- like, which I did- think lends credence to what you just said, is they probably nixed her because they saw kind of how mm-hmm. you know what a hot young thing she was kind of taking away the thunder right. of lauren mccall so they kind of didn't have her come back when naturally that's what you, you there should they should see her again. we should see her again and i feel we should see the old man again and we never do yeah um, no you know he plays a cameo part and he's right. got this very disturbing i mean right off the top the things get there's almost Weird. an unrealism to it yeah. They're so sweaty and yeah. so, you know, uh, and he has just got the, I think a lot of Faulkner's um, contributions come in this scene where he talks about the stinking rot of the orchids. <laughs> that and, that uh, is very Faulknerian. <laughs> and, you know, I'm um, surprised he didn't, you know, mention the wisteria uh, or <laughs> any number of other Faulkner tropes. But that is a, that first scene really right off the bat, and you're acting, you're sort of wondering why... Marlowe's responding to it and not is going along with it instead of being like, you're a weird, I'm, yeah. I hate it here. This yeah. is bizarre. It, <laughs> yeah. it immediately, I think, puts you into this noir world of exaggerated language, uh, you know, fatalism. I've got the two worst daughters in the world. Yeah. If you were wise, you'd go like Sean did and get the hell out of here. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I want you to find... Um, you know, I want you to find uh, out what happened to him. And then you're right. You never see him again. What, what you get, honestly, so in, the, in the book, it ends back at the house with him and her. Like, you, like that, I could have used that closure. But uh, as you said, it's not about the plot. It's, I mean, it's, like you I mean, it's obviously a film noir because the plot, mm-hmm. I mean, this makes the Chinatown plot look, you know, like, like Cat Simple. the Hat or something. It's super right. easy to see what's going on in Chinatown compared to this. But there is, you see, I mean, that makes Chinatown, since we already talked about that, Chinatown such a noir classic, and so is The Big Sleep. A lot of the same elements, they're just changed slightly. Oh, yeah. Detached private eye, a family, uh, you know, rich family. Uh, blackmail, secrets. Yeah. Right. It's all this, it's, you know, you just rearrange the details a little bit, or in, in the Big Sleep's case, you just cut them up and throw them in the air and don't yeah. care if you've, if you've exactly. lost some or missed a few. You know, it's the same, people end up drowned. It's, what's the difference between Mr. Mulray and the chauffeur yeah. or Sean? I mean, there's a couple people who are central to the plot who we never see alive in this entire yeah. movie. <laughs> uh, so, 
uh, again, that's all. I, I think the ending works because it's the the story that we want resolved, which is the two of them together, not so much the mystery, which I don't remember even being. <laughs> I mean, I just saw it yesterday, and I don't even remember what the mystery necessarily was. <laughs> right, uh, but and, and that, but then the Helen, last and the last line itself is great. Yeah. Of you know what's wrong with you? Nothing you can't fix. I mean that's pretty good. Um, pretty good line. Uh, and how how old Hollywood is the the end being over two smoking cigarettes next to each other? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> you don't see that too much uh, these days. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's one of my favorites. And so we talked about I've mentioned Faulkner, who of course is a great writer, uh, but at the time, I mean, honestly, wrote more movies than he did novels. Uh, wrote about 50, was a part of 50 projects, uh, really probably made better money writing uh, movies than he did, uh, than he certainly did novels, and that was the reason why he was out there in Hollywood writing these novels. I couldn't tell you, he writing these movies. Uh, and he also wrote, or co-wrote, the screenplay to, to Have or Have Not, which made Bacall a star, and had worked with Howard Hawks before, and he wanted to work with him again. Now, he's one of three writers uh, which is important to remember because it's not just him on his own. And I have read reports of his original screenplay. Uh, and you know how people do this sort of thing where they're like, oh, if they had only made the screenplay that, which I don't know if I buy that, but, um, you know, you've got William Faulkner, you have Jules Furthman, who is a, a company man type of screenwriter, and Lee Brackett, who was a uh, pulp crime novelist herself and wrote an, any number of great screenplays. Uh, of wide range, she had a long, long career uh, from Rio Bravo uh, in, the, in 1959 to a certain uh, The Empire Strikes Back in 1980. So uh, with the second coming of Humphrey Bogart, Han Solo himself. So, you know, there is, it, it, I think in this era, really the unsung heroes are the screenwriters not only to get around the censors but there's just so many more it's so funny when i when i'm about to say that back then you want to talk about stars versus stars but to me it's stories versus non-stories stories then versus concepts now uh, and i'm giving that despite the fact that we've just talked about that the story here is ridiculous and ludicrous yeah. and unfollowable <laughs> yeah uh and so this is more of an exception to the rule but there you know i i I feel like now the screenwriter uh, is, I think is selling a, a trailer more than a movie. Uh, Does that I make sense? You're a little too down on movies today, but that uh, certainly happens. It's possible. And that, that's a wide brush because I see movies every year that I love and I think are great and that you wouldn't see 30 years ago or 50 years ago or certainly not six, 70 years ago like this one's coming up on. And I'll bring it back uh, to the point you made in the beginning. The movies you see from 1946 are the good ones. And you see all the crap that comes out now. That's a very good point. Along with the good ones. That's the best point of all, and that's 100% true. I guess my only point being that this would have been a big release for Warner Brothers at the time, whereas this movie is not getting the backing of a big studio today. That's true. This would be the December 12th release that you hope gets Oscar buzz to push it past 50 million. And this this got zero Oscar buzz. Uh, You know, this was not a critical... I mean, people liked it, but just a different... uh, But you're right, you know. Uh, This would be, if it got released at all, would be your your Christmas time um, winter type stuff. And whereas this had the... It wasn't the same sort of editorial calendar back then, but this would be the equivalent of a summer movie. 
for for them, and which just seems to be more bizarre when your hero doesn't fire a gun at all. There's a lot of gunplay no, he, here, but he not shoot, from he shoots Capino or. Uh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Which my, my actually, apologies. when he does that, it's so jarring to me. It's like, whoa, he's actually shooting a gun. Which it's like, of course he's going to shoot a gun, right? Uh, uh, Canino. Canino. Uh, and before it. he says over here, Canino, or something like that. <laughs> That's one of the only because there are so many repeated names: Boyd, um, uh, Mars. I you just you forget you, you get them all confused. Yes. But all you, all you got to do is pay attention to. Um, Brody, not Boyd. I can't remember now. Yeah. Brody, Jones, Sternwood, who knows. Uh, it, it seem, does that seem like faint prey? I mean, uh, what do you think of the movie, I guess, is the, is the ultimate question. No, did so it I've bother said, you that you couldn't follow it to save uh, your life? It, it did bother me because I like to follow movies, so that yeah. bothered me, but it made, like, I mean, I was, I was literally laughing at some time. Like, I was laughing at the dialogues, and not laughing at it, but, I mean, it was funny. It was clever. Mm-hmm. Uh I felt, I mean, it was, and not that the dialogue was Aaron Sorkin-like, but it felt sometimes like an Aaron Sorkin movie in which literally every person is clever enough to come up with a comeback like, right away, right? That's right. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't expect... W- was fun. Marlo- I love that scene in the bookshop where he's like, do you have this Ben-Hur issue whatever? Why would he have that information? I want, I want this Ben-Hur edition, this, that, and the other yeah. thing that has this and this and this. And that's how he's able to find out that the and that yeah. that's how he's able to find out that the one bookstore is a front for something else because right. the the clerk there know. doesn't realize that there is no addition for that kind of thing. Yeah. That suggests without having to show it, without having to tell us a lot of characterization, the things that he cares about, the things that he on his own time now knows that he's using uh, for his professional life. But you know why that book? Why that edition? Why that little nugget of information? Well, he read uh, it. He just read it. He just checked out the book at the library right before that. Did we see that? Yeah. He's at the library and he's reading through a book. Like, uh-huh. in fact, it's funny because at the library, they don't think he's the kind of guy that'd want a book on first editions. And so he finds it out. And then he comes over there. And, of course, then he's nerded himself up. Right. He's nerded himself out. I remember yeah. that. Uh, well, this, is, this is not good. I've forgotten that detail. Yeah, but I do. Okay, but, but yeah, but in the book, what he's like, you do sell books, and she's like, yeah. What is it? What did they look like? Grapefruit? Like, uh-huh. who would say that in real life? <laughs> well, yeah, it's stylized. That's what I'm saying. That's what I, I just I it's it pops. Uh, it was fun, uh, but yeah. yeah. Then I would I would get upset about the plot <laughs> not making sense. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. You have any other thoughts? No, I guess I'll have to watch it the thir- uh, again now. I've forgotten some of the, the salient details. but Well, uh, and you th- pointed this out to me before we watched it, that, yeah, and as you said earlier, like, there's different cuts of it with different parts removed. Right. I mean, the scene of him at the library, oh, I don't know if we'd cut it out unless you were adding another scene so you didn't want it to be too long. I don't know, but... Uh, no, I think I've now kind of remember what you're saying. The the different cuts, pretty much, there was a 1945 edition and then a 1946 and the biggest difference, the way I understand it, is the horse racing scene is added in, um, yeah. and there's some some things taken out. But I don't believe it, practically the 1945 edition is practically unseen. I can only imagine that. In fact, now I know that since the one I saw had the horse racing scene in it, 
um, we saw the same version. Yeah. It's possible that if you buy the you know a collector's edition DVD, they'll have both versions on there or a comparative study between the two. But the the forty five one, if it came out at all, and I can't remember now, was so they you know I can't remember if it was a test if they sent it out to audiences and it was completely rejected, and so they recut it. Uh, on a test basis or really did release it and then re-release it a year later, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. People who know more about studio history can um, talk about that, but they basically there's just one issue, uh, one edition of it, and that's the 1946 release. Well, there was one thing that I read that I thought was pretty interesting. So it comes out, you know, it came out even 1945, but, you know, released in 46, mm-hmm. which is after World War II, yeah, uh, but you see in the movie FDR, you know, his face is, yeah. you know, his painting is up in the one bookstore. Uh, there's certain things that indicate the war is going on because it was shot, you know, earlier, yeah. it was shot during the war, but they delayed it because Warner Brothers thought people would want to see war movies, and they're like, well, people will always want to see a detective story, so we're we keep this, but we want right. to, you know, strike with the irons hot on people wanting to see war movies, and we've got a bunch of those in the can, so we've released those before this. So it sat on the shelf for a while. I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> and then they rushed it. They shelved it because Bacall had a second movie coming out, and it flopped. And then they were like, oh, Ooh, we, we got to Let's get whatever Bacall stuff out there. It's like shaking off a blown slave or something like that. Let's just get out the next day uh, and play again. And uh, this became, you know, I don't even remember the name of the second movie. Uh, I'm not a big Lauren Bacall fan. She's... Uh, Something about her drives me nuts, although it's really remarkable to watch her go head-to-head with these, because she's only 20 years old in this movie. Wow. Uh, and she, you know, her second movie, her third movie, third release, second, you know, worked on, uh, and she goes, she, they have a great scene, the two of them, certainly the horse racing scene, which we talked about, but then also when she's in uh, his office and... Uh, Love that line. Go ahead and scratch. She he says uh, she's been sort of futzing with her the hem of her skirt. Yeah. Uh, you know they really play off. Well. I mean, there's a reason why you're talking about chemistry. That undefinable thing they certainly yeah. have it. There's no doubt about it. But honestly, and this is maybe because I'm anti Bacall, which I didn't say anti Bacall. But uh, speaking of FDR, there's a great picture of Bacall on a piano being played by Harry Truman, which is one of my all-time favorite strange history uh, photos. I'm sure he's playing the Missouri Waltz. He might have been playing the Missouri Waltz. Uh, And she's great in a movie that also has a nymphette sister um, called... uh, uh, Ooh... It's d- directed by Douglas Sirk, who also directed All That Heaven Allows. This name of this movie, it's got the Written in the Wind. Whew. It's a great movie. Uh, I'm so in glad which you reached... remember that, or we'd all be a lot poorer for it. I'm just saying, one of these seasons of watching the right movies, Written on the Wind, they show up. Uh, okay, but anyway. Uh, but the things that dominate my memory are not the scenes of the two of them, but again, the scenes of the Carmen the, certainly the first scene when he gets to the castle Sternwood or mansion Sternwood, yeah. but then also a scene when he finds her, he finds her having murdered somebody, uh, or there with a dead body in any event, uh, who knows exactly what happened, but, uh, those scenes to me just light off the screen, but the two of them together, Bacall and Bogart, of course are great. It's a, it's a, it's one of my all time favorite noirs. And I think it, it featured that way. It was either number one or two. And we talked about our top five noirs when we talked about Chinatown. Yeah. All right. Well, so today, since we're not, we can't do film noirs again, 
Give right. me your top five bogey flicks. Okay. Uh, number five is what we've talked about uh, briefly, to have and have not. Again, uh, with a, by Hawks, with a wonderful uh, screenplay by Faulkner. Number four, The Treasure on the Sierra Madre. Uh, pardon me, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, number three is The Maltese Falcon, Unseen by Ben. You, no, I did, I have, I've seen it. Oh, you have seen it? Okay. Yeah, I, I remember it. Uh, number two is The Big Sleep, and number one is now a movie that we've both seen, Benny. Casablanca. Uh, you know, I didn't think when I started making this list, I, I'm not the world's biggest bogey fan either, but there are some, a lot of things here left off, like The African Queen, In a Lonely Place, Beat the Devil. He just made a lot of really good movies. He is a... Uh, but I don't know if that's the case. It's like we've been talking this whole time. Is, did he make a lot of great movies? Because I've seen the eight or nine yeah. best ones he made. Uh, or did, you know, I, is it just the deal that the, the stinker, you know, the, if, um, if, he is, if Bruce Willis is the modern-day bogey, you know, no one's going to be watching Red 2 30 years from now. Uh, you know, is it just, yeah. but people will be like, boy, Bruce Willis is really great. Look, you've got Die Hard, you've got uh, Pulp Fiction, you know, all these you know, all those things. Is it one of those deals where just history has edited to making his output seem better than it is? Uh, I mean, yes, but also he, I mean, you just mentioned like eight off the top of your head that are great movies. I think any actor today, if they could say they were in eight great movies, would feel pretty good. So that's true. And I think uh, that has a lot to do with the fact that back then, like you said, the system was just so different that there were just so many fewer stars and that you knew every year that the same 20 stars were going to make, uh, a movie or so. Now yeah. there are fifty stars, and so the which the, is to say the there are no real stars. <laughs> In a certain sense, sure, but I, 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 I mean, if we're going on this, I think Will Smith is maybe like our only super legit. This guy is a movie star, and people will see the movie because he's in it. I, I you know, I think you're right. He's, every movie he makes makes a hundred million dollars or more. Well, uh, except recently, that... I mean, he's got to get off of Mad after After Earth, but. Up to that point, it was like, yeah, Will Smith's in it. I'm seeing it. Because even Clooney, people are like, oh, Clooney's in that movie. I don't really want to see it, but good for him. <laughs> right. Well, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Smith makes a movie every three or four years, not every year. You know, would it had speaking of, would Tom Cruise have done better to make, instead of Oblivion, just Edge of Tomorrow, or one or the other, yeah. or none, yeah. or neither, for God's sakes? I yeah. don't know. Uh, you, there, I think that Will Smith is the only uh, movie star, because I think he's the only one who cares so much about that, who doesn't care about working, is will turn down a project that he thinks is good, because he doesn't think it's a profitable, he doesn't think it's a star vehicle. Does that make sense? Uh, I I think when you say that's why he's a movie star is I think that's a good thing that he does, but I think he's a movie star because he's got charisma. He's got that it. He's but, got yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I think people maybe they, they don't. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. All right. So everyone, yeah. Seriously, you should see Casablanca. I held out for a long time for no reason. You're gonna yeah, enjoy. Why it. did you hold out? Let's talk. I mean, we're never gonna have an opportunity because that's not what the point of the show is. Let's talk briefly about the Casablanca. Two, one or two minutes. Why did you wait so long, and why did you decide to see it now? Uh, I don't know. Because I was like, what am I gonna do? Watch Casablanca by myself on a Friday night? I don't know. So I didn't. Yeah. Why not? I might do that tonight. It's a Saturday night today, but yeah. I may, yeah, I'm going to watch Casablanca tonight. Yeah, I don't, and, uh, so, 
I think that I was waiting to watch with my wife sometime, uh, and so then we finally did two months ago. <laughs> two months ago. So you saw yeah. it before you saw Notorious. Claude Rains, though, man. That Claude Rains is so good, isn't he? Yeah, he sure is. <laughs> Very different part than the Notorious, but yeah. okay. Uh, anyway, Castle, go see Big Sleep, go see Casablanca. That's that's the easiest. Those yeah. are, that's those are, those are two gimmies. Go see Die Hard, another gimme. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so if you want more amazing movie tips, like see Die Hard and Casablanca, right. you can tune in next week on Tuesday. Uh, please email us at watchingtherightmovies at gmail.com. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out at nickronkoski.com along with Nick's other reviews. And we will see you next week. Bye.